you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords and that you did not withhold your only Son from us for you so loved the world. Oh God, you so loved the world. Lord, we thank you that you loved us first, that you pursue us, that you've called us, you've chosen us to be your children. So God, we worship you and we thank you and we praise you from now on into eternity for you're worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. So God, this morning as we open up your word, your beautiful word that you've given to us to reveal yourself to us so that we may know you and we may know the plans that you have for us and that you've laid from the foundations of the world. We ask you would open up our hearts and our minds that we may see you anew, that we may know you deeper and rest in your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Welcome, you guys. Uh, welcome to all who are joining us online today. We're so glad you're with us. Um, before I dive into the sermon, just wanted to bring again to our attention uh, the, the Commitment Sunday for 2021. We're kind of talking about our, our budget for next year. Uh, the board has approved a budget. We're going to present it to the congregation November 22nd at 10 a.m. in between services. So uh, we ask uh, all members, anybody who wants to come and check it out, come and we're going to vote to approve the budget. And we ask if you're coming to that meeting uh, to, to wear a face covering uh, just so anybody who's high risk uh, can feel comfortable joining that as well. Um, so that's going to be November 22nd at 10 a.m. And in your bulletins, um, it, it has a line here for my commitment uh, or my anticipated giving for 2021. And this, we just want you to have this uh, for individual or as a family to, to pray over this. Uh, for this upcoming year, uh, how God is calling you uh, to give. And if you're like me, you have automatic giving set up. And so this is that time where you kind of reevaluate, okay, where are we with our finances? And how do we want to maybe adjust or, or not adjust uh, what, we're, what we're doing uh, with our automatic giving? And I just want to say, as we're talking about giving, just a huge thank you uh, to you all, uh, to, to KCC family, uh, for your generosity, truly, um, amidst the pandemic you have been so, so very generous uh, and, and provided uh, abundantly for the, the ministries of the church and what's happening here. It is so amazing to see. And seriously, amidst a nation of churches that are closing because of uh, this pandemic, uh, our budget is strong. And uh, man, I'm just so grateful, so thankful for God's faithfulness and for your uh, faithfulness in and amongst this. Um, yeah, God has been faithful. Uh, he's been uh, taking care of us, and we just, uh, I just got the numbers from Marcia Sisson about the 100 Women to Change. Uh, the final numbers right now are $22,000 that we're going to be able to send uh, to Empowering Lives International, uh, to Kenya, to, to help these women uh, transform their lives, to, to be exposed to the gospel and to change their families and their communities, and, and it's a really incredible movement of God's Spirit that's happening and that we're a small part of. And so, man, what a cool thing. Um, so before I kind of dive into the sermon, I just want to quickly talk about giving, uh, just what God says about giving. Uh, we do this once a year, and just want to, if you're wondering, what, what does God say about giving? How should I try to plan out my finances for this year? Um, I'm going to start in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. 
where God says through the prophet Malachi, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The only time God says, put me to the test, the only time has to do with bringing our full tithe into the storehouse. And that's pretty cool uh, that God says, test me in this, man. I'll, I'll pour out a blessing until there's no more need. And then Jesus in, in Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24, uh, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So Jesus says, yes, tithe, but don't neglect the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's a matter of the heart. And God says he loves a cheerful giver, one who loves to give to the things of God. And also live out daily the ways of God. And the New Testament kind of treats the, the tithe as maybe a starting point. Uh, but we see in the early church, a lot gave well beyond uh, the tithe um, in, in their generosity. And that's what we do during our faith promise, right? I mean, this, every February, we, 100% of our faith promise goes overseas abroad, uh, while 10% of our general giving goes to missions right off the top already. And so... This is kind of where, where Jesus leans in. He says, yes, tithe, but don't neglect these other things that are even more important than that. <laughs> um, and then in, in Mark, which we're in Mark right now, so it's cool to go to Mark and look at, at giving here. If you remember from a couple months ago, Mark 12, 41 through 44, and he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Huh? She put in what amounted to a penny. Uh, and they put in a whole lot more. Uh, Jesus explains, he says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus sees our hearts and, her, and our circumstances uh, as he saw the heart and the circumstances of that widow, trusting in God with everything she had to live on. And, and now I want to say to you, if you're in a place of financial turmoil, uh, where you can't seem to get your finances uh, back on track, there are great tools and resources to help with that. Uh, Joanna and I went through Financial Peace University with, with Dave Ramsey early on in our marriage. And man, we're so thankful that we did that to kind of to set the priorities uh, for how we manage our finances um, and first uh, giving to God and, and trusting him in that and, and budgeting the rest, the rest out. And, and there's things that we, we can't do, but there's a lot of things we can do. And it makes it really, really fun to give uh, when you've, you've kind of got your finances in order. And so if, if you're out there and you're like, man, I'm in financial turmoil, talking about giving is stressing me out. Please don't be stressed out. Uh, we want to we come alongside you and support you in that. Um, and we, we did a Financial Peace University earlier this year. Uh, Jesse went through uh, with, a, with a class of people through the Dave Ramsey material, and I think COVID kind of messed that up kind of midway through. I'm not sure how much they, they got through in person. But uh, anyhow, if you're like thinking, man, I need that, I desire that, um, especially amidst this pandemic, let us know. Let me know, and we'll kind of figure something out and maybe get another class going 
or something for you. So anyhow, that's our, that's our talk on giving for this morning. God looks at the heart, right? And, and we know that a tithe doesn't save us. <laughs> it's not about salvation. You don't have to give a tithe. Nobody's forcing you to do that. Uh, we're just kind of showing you what the Bible says um, about giving, and it's, it's more about the matter of the heart, about how we're giving and, and trusting in God with what we have. And so, um, anyhow, we're, we're just thankful that, uh, that God has given us all we have, every breath that we take is from him. So we just, we just want to say, God, we're trusting you with this. And, uh, and our bank account doesn't own us, so we're going to give to you, even if it hurts a little bit. So anyhow, this is, that's what Jesus says about giving, what scripture says. Um, so we trust him in that. And I thank you again just for your faithfulness. You guys, year over year over year, are just so, so faithful. So now we're going to go back to Mark. Mark chapter 15, and we're, we're getting to the end of Mark's gospel account. We have just two weeks left. That's counting this one. So next week is the last week we're in Mark. That is amazing. We started this whole COVID thing uh, in Mark, and then we went online. Everything happened. Now we're, we're coming back in person finally, and now we're closing out Mark. It's kind of cool. Anyhow, so we're just going to dive right in this morning. Um, so if you remember from last week, Jesus has just been scourged and he's been sentenced to death by crucifixion by Pontius Pilate. So he is now in the hands of Roman soldiers and Mark 15, chapter 16 begins. Mark writes, and the soldiers led him away inside the, inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Uh, the Greek word used here is cohort meaning a tenth of a Roman legion, usually about 600 soldiers. So this wasn't like a couple guys. Okay, this, was, this was a battalion of 600 soldiers that was called together. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So this was not a small event. Behind closed doors, they called all these soldiers together for the sole purpose of mocking Jesus. With his back already shredded from the scourging and his face swollen from the beatings that he'd already received, the Romans are just getting started with him, clothing him in purple, the royal color of the Romans, and, and pressing down a crown of thorns onto his head, mocking him. Verse 19, and they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. So it's a pretty, it's pretty despicable behavior from these Roman soldiers. But remember, the tensions were very high between the Jews and the Romans. Uh, there were insurrections, there were rebellions that were popping up. You remember Barabbas from last week had murdered a guy in, in an insurrection. Uh, so social unrest was increasing. So these soldiers are establishing their dominance by, by mocking uh, Jesus and calling him you know, the so-called king of the Jews. But unknown to them in this moment, it was their creator incarnate whom they beat repeatedly and mocked relentlessly. Their creator who, whose immeasurable love caused him to give himself willingly over to his enemies to accomplish something beyond their comprehension, to make we who were once alienated and enemies of God, now sons and daughters of God, washed and cleansed through his act of supreme compassion and love as Jesus willingly endured it all silently. He's truly an amazing Savior. 
that though rejected and mocked by the world, died for the world, taking it all upon himself and putting it to death for all who would follow after him in rejecting the world and its ways and following after God and his ways, that though rejected by this world, he died for it nonetheless, for he loves us so. Verse 20 continues on. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. So Jesus was too weak to carry the cross on his own from the relentless beating and scourging. So they compelled, meaning forcibly compelled a passerby, Simon, to carry it. So two things of note here. The Romans, again, establishing their dominance, forced another Jew to carry the cross because they would not. And second thing of note are the details about Simon of Cyrene, where Mark rarely names anybody. Here we have three names of Simon and his two sons, and that they were from Cyrene, which was located in northern Africa, uh, which is in modern-day eastern Libya. It is a Greek city in the province of Cyrenica, um, and it had a Jewish community uh, who had a population around 100,000 Judean Jews who, who had been forced, forcibly moved there and settled there during the reign of Ptolemy Soter in 323 to 285 BC. So this huge population of Jews was, front, was there, and, and Simon and his sons uh, came for the Passover, as was custom. And they were caught up in this moment and dragged into this. And interesting also, Cyrene became an early center of Christianity. So when the early church started, Cyrene became this kind of, this kind of center hub there. Uh, so amazingly, tradition says that Simon of Cyrene and his two sons uh, became prominent men and leaders in the early church and missionaries to their home of Cyrene. So where the Roman soldiers would be horrified to discover their actions against the true savior of the world, Simon, in his humiliation, in the humiliation of this moment, uh, being forced to carry a cross at sword point, would later be honored for his actions. And not just him, his sons as well. In the absence of Simon Peter, who denied Jesus and fled the scene, Simon of Cyrene, in a very literal sense, picked up his cross and followed Jesus. As Jesus says in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When we choose to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus, it means being willingly subjected to humiliation. What it means is, is humbling ourselves, recognizing our own road to the cross, that Christ's road there was paved with our sin, that when we follow him, it, it begins with the humility of saying, I need you, Jesus. I need you, God. I'm done trying to lift myself up, trying to fix myself. Instead, I will become nothing so that you can be exalted in my life. But won't we lose our identity if we do that? Right? Won't, won't I lose the things that make me me if, if I do that, if I deny myself? Again, we must look to Christ as our example. For as Paul writes regarding this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also 
in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus isn't simply telling us to deny ourselves. He is going before us as our good king, as our good shepherd, and utterly emptying himself. So so don't get wrapped up in your identities here on this earth. Empty yourself of that and be consumed by your new identity in Christ, holy and dearly loved children of God who are found in him as those who have followed his lead. Paul goes on in Philippians 2 saying how Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And says in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him. For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the model of God's kingdom. The model of the king who emptied himself and went to the cross, whereby he paved the way for us to follow in his footsteps, placing our faith fully in him and the work that he's accomplished. Verse 22, and they brought him to the, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Matthew records that as Jesus went to the cross in the parallel account, uh, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, Matthew writes. But after tasting it, Jesus refused to drink it. So this drink offered to Jesus was, was a cheap uh, Roman vinegar wine, which has, had a drug mixed into it to kind of dole the senses. And Jesus refused this wine mixed with this doling agent, apparently so that he can go through his suffering with a clear mind. His mission was not yet Finished. So he was not about to let a doling agent slow his mind and dole his pain. Jesus took no shortcut, no easy way out, no backing out last minute for fear. He boldly went forward as the courageous lion of Judah, made spotless lamb as the final Passover sacrifice. So, where did Jesus get this courage from? Well, remember on the Mount of Olives where his disciples spoke boldly saying they would follow Jesus even if it meant to their death. And they all said it. Remember that? What'd they do next? They fell asleep in the garden. What did Jesus do that night? He dropped to his knees before his father in distress, crying out to him, praying to him throughout the night. And who withstood the challenges of that night? The betrayal, the arrest, the beatings, and the trials. Not the boastful disciples who were fast asleep when the betrayer came upon them. No, they turned tail and ran at the first sign of trouble. It was Christ alone who stood facing the mob and allowed himself to be taken. For that was the will of the Father. And the face of Christ was set on his mission. And he found strength in his connection and his relationship with the Father. We only find true strength to face any trial through our relationship with the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. He is a relational God, the triune God, 
who desires a relationship with us and for us to trust in him and obey him as he demonstrated to us perfectly in the garden. So Jesus refused the doling agent, verse 24, and they crucified him, meaning they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross and lifted him up to die slow and anguishing death and divided up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. John writes in his account, uh, they did this because they did not want to tear his garments, but it also fulfilled prophecy. Moving on, verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And John tells us it is written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, so everyone could read the king of the Jews, the sign over Christ on the cross. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now we know from Luke's account, Luke's parallel account, one of these criminals crucified with him came to faith, asking Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. But Mark is demonstrating for us that everyone, no matter how high or low a station, mocked and reviled Jesus, from somebody dying next to him, to the wealthy scribes, to the powerful Roman soldiers. He was rejected by all. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So three hours of darkness over the entire land while the sun was at its peak in the sky. The light of the world was dying, and the earth grew dark for three hours. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So Mark seems to be showing us here how the bystanders misunderstood what Jesus actually said. When he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, they heard Eli, Eli, thinking he was calling upon Elijah. Because remember how they were, were looking for Elijah to come uh, and prepare the way for the Messiah. As Malachi prophesied, Elijah would come first. But Jesus, in fact, told his disciples that Elijah has already come in the person John the Baptist. And they rejected him, and he was beheaded by Herod. And then also we know that Elijah appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Elijah had come and gone, and Jesus was not calling out to him. He was instead quoting Psalm 22, which if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you, you all need to go there, open up to Psalm 22 in your Bible to see just how incredible God is. And how marvelous his word is. For this is a psalm of David uh, that finds its full fulfillment in Jesus on the cross. 
meaning this was written a millennia before the cross, and yet describes this moment as if Jesus himself was speaking. The psalm begins, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, we're going to skip ahead to verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And skipping ahead to verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Remember all the times that Jesus asked the people and the religious leaders, have you not read? Do you not know? In his cry out to the Father, he again points us to his word, where King David gives words to the anguish of the Lord, that he is surrounded and mocked. They cast lots for his garments. His hands and his feet are pierced. His bones are out of joint. His heart turns to wax while it tries to beat faster and faster to keep him alive as his lungs fill with water and he suffocates. He is dehydrated. As his tongue sticks to his jaw, and he is strained and exposed, and all his bones can be counted as he hangs from the cross. There is nothing else in the world that compares to the Bible. There is nothing that, that comes even remotely close, you guys. So I'm going to put up here a picture uh, on the screen. I think Denise has it. Okay, this is a picture of the Bible. This is all the, all the books and passages in the Bible. And all the lines that you see on here show the interconnectedness of Scripture. So every line, they use different colors to kind of help you see, because uh, there's so many lines. That's, and that line in the middle is the Old and the New Testament there. So you just see how interconnected all of Scripture is. How woven together, and over 40 authors, is written over a period, almost two millennia, uh, time period of when it was written. And look how interconnected it is, how these passages all relate to each other. This is a living, God-breathed word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's as interconnected as your body is. Each functioning to serve the whole. And it functions as the story of God's redemption of the world. Culminating on the cross that the Logos, the word that became flesh, as John writes in his gospel account, meaning the word of God or or, or the Logos or the principle of divine reason and creative order, the divine wisdom manifest in creation, government, and redemption of the world. The Logos, he is that which spoke the universe into existence. Now hung on a tree that we put him on. And he was only there because he went willingly to redeem us. Continuing on here in Mark chapter 15, he's on the cross. They just brought him the sour wine. Verse 37, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This was no normal death. The sky was darkened when it should have been bright. The earth shook and Jesus cried out loudly and breathed his last. It was such a death that the Roman centurion, a commander of a hundred soldiers, who had seen thousands of men take their last breath, was awestruck and terrified at how Jesus died. And the whole earth, seeming to groan at his death, exclaiming out loud, truly this man was the son of God. A Roman officer saw what the Jewish religious leaders could not and would not, that what was veiled in the flesh was the Godhead who willingly laid down his life to the scorn of mockers and scoffers. The spiritual significance of this event was bleeding out into the physical realm. As at the baptism of Jesus where the heavens were were torn open, so at his death the heavens were shaken and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil, meaning the veil separating the Holy of Holies, the, the, the place where the presence of God dwelt on earth, has separated us. Has separated the people from the presence of God. And the high priest could only go to the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And only after being ceremonially cleansed. For to enter into the presence of God is to enter into the holiness of God. And for us, it would mean instant death. For we could not see him and live as we are. But that veil has been torn now from top to bottom as from the very hand of God. For Christ has now become our high priest who has made the ultimate and final atonement sacrifice with his very own blood. The book of Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 through 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, Melchizedek is a high priest who is also a king in the Old Testament who Abraham gives a tithe to a tenth of all he had after a great battle that he won. So Jesus is now our high priestly king, for he has gone through the veil for us to serve as our high priest. The tearing of the temple veil signified the start of Christ's ministry as our high priest. So we no longer need to go through any other priest to have access to God. We can go directly to Christ and have a personal relationship with God. Interestingly enough, we can, we can go to Mark chapter 14 and see the last high priest disqualify himself uh, from the service uh, before the new and eternal high priest took over. So look with me at Mark 14 uh, verses 61 through 64. We read again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So so there's just one problem here. (laughs) The high priest 
tore his garments. And the Levitical law forbids the high priest from doing so. Look, uh, look with me at Leviticus 21, verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. The high priest here disqualified himself by tearing his garments before the true high priest, whose garments were not torn. In fact, remember the guards who cast lots for his clothes. They did so in order not to tear them, John records for us. So Jesus is the great high priestly king. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to express the supremacy of Christ as our high priest, saying in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Tearing the veil from top to bottom, breaking open the way to the very presence of God by his own blood, he made a way for eternal redemption. You just see the whole of Scripture, the whole sacrificial system, pointing to this moment. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the high priest, he's our mediator, he's that which all our hope is found upon. And he became such as the one who poured out his blood on our behalf, willingly becoming the sin sacrifice, the final atonement, at which no other is needed. Psalm 22 ends with this, and this is so cool. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Christ has done it. The Bible is the great story of redemption. And today we proclaim it to a new generation that he has done it. And a response should be no less than the Roman centurion who saw him take his last breath. Truly this man was and is the Son of God. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How is it so simple, we might say? Because he has done it. He has done it. You haven't done it because we couldn't do it. So he did it on our behalf because God so loved the world. And this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That is the great and mighty love of God. That he would save such a rebellious people with his own incarnate blood. Our version here of, of Romans 10, 9 through 10 at KCC is, is the ABCs. We say it's as simple as the ABCs to admit, to believe, and to choose, to admit, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I've tried and I failed. I need a Savior and believe on Christ that he is that Savior, that he died for our sins once and for all, and he rose again from the grave. 
for all eternity to rule and to reign and to confess him as Lord and then to choose him and follow him for the rest of our days as disciples of Christ Jesus. So would you please pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you chose us, that you did not withhold your only son from us, Lord. And God, we admit that we fall short in every way. And we believe that Christ overcame in every way so that we might be brought back into right relationship with you, Father. So we praise you and we thank you that that veil to your presence was torn from top to bottom, that we now have access to you through the Son and in the Spirit that you've given us to dwell within us, Lord. You're with us even here and now in this moment. So we praise you for your presence, for your love, and for your promises, Lord. Go before us through the rest of this day and through the rest of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.